We're glad to be with you. We are in the book of Nehemiah chapter 7 today. And this is where we come to the place the wall has been built. And so now the wall is completely done that we have been speaking about for several weeks here, both Pastor Joshua and myself. And now the wall is built and God begins to do some very interesting things as we look at this time. Uh, the title today of the message is, because we're going to see the wall began in ruins and it comes to riches. We see it physically and really in every life. This is true, that when we begin, we are nothing but ruins. But when God gets a hold of us and things begin to change, out of it comes riches. And this is what we're going to see from ruins to riches today and how God works in these just amazing ways. Let's pray together as we begin. Lord God, I thank you for everyone that is here. I thank you, Lord, for your word that is living, that is real. It speaks to us, Father, through the book of Nehemiah. Lord, as you were faithful to those people, your people, your heart, so also we look to you to be faithful, Lord, just like you have always been. Because what you are have promised you are able to completely perform in every way, Father, and have your way today in the Word. We pray, Lord, that the Word can come alive in our heart, that you can speak to each of us where you want us to hear you. I pray that our hearts can be open, our ears can be open, our eyes can be open to your Word, that you can enter and speak to us like you would desire today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, Deb and I was traveling into California to be with my parents a few days. And we took the, the way, it's really close in GPS, but we took the Tehachapi Pass. My parents live in the Central Valley of California. And we left pretty early in the morning, so we stopped up on the top of Tehachapi. And something Deb and I have been doing for many years is we'll, we'll walk. So we hadn't got our walk in, so we thought, let's take a walk up there in the top, we found a trail, and we were just taking the trail, and it was a nice paved trail. It's cooler up there. That's kind of nice. And all of a sudden, we're walking along, and hey, got to the end of the trail. We're on our way back. There's a barbed wire fence, and I looked in the grass that was about this high, right, right there, and I saw these two ears. And I looked at the ears, and... I kept looking in the grass and I saw two eyes. And then I realized as we kept walking closer, I realized that we were blessed to be 20 foot from a bobcat that God had put in the grass. And we had a little teeny, little teeny fence between us. And yet that bobcat was exactly where God placed him. He was right at the place that the Lord wanted him. And he'd create, God created this bobcat, and we were blessed, Dev and I. And I said, isn't it amazing that us so different can come up to this point? But as we look today in the text, we're going we're gonna to see three lessons, really. One lesson we're going to see is that there's always room for more. The, the wall is completed. We're going to look in the Word. There's always room for more. We're going to see something else interesting about God as we look at this message today, and that is that God builds with broken things. God takes us from ruins to beauty, 
But he doesn't begin with good things. He begins with brokenness and ruins and that which we in our flesh would want to give up on, but God doesn't. And we're going to see that. And the last thing we're going to see in this, in the, in this text this morning is God works with people just like you and I. That's the flow through which God works. Many, many times we say, God, I want you to work. God works through people, just like you and I, who say yes to him and say, Lord, here I am, and God begins to do the work. Now, open your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 7, and we want to read a few verses as we begin. We're not going to read this whole chapter, 73 verses, but we do want to draw some lessons from the, cha from the chapter. But that first lesson we're going to see here is... Now, when the wall was rebuilt, okay, the wall is done, there's room for more. Let's just, you find the room for more. When the wall was rebuilt, I set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites were appointed. Then I put Hananiah, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And so you can see what they had. They had a little bit of what we've got in Arizona right now. And while they're standing guard, let them shut, the shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each at, in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. And we could say, yet. Because God would begin to do something, and we'll see this in this book, that God begins to take less and make it greater. And he takes that which is unworthy, and he makes it worthy. And what you've got now is a, uh, is a wall that has been built that just 52 days before was lying in ruins. It was just a mess. And you have a group of men and women who gather together, together in the Lord, Lord, and God gives them the strength. The wall is completed. It is done. And we are now looking at the other side of what God is doing. And the lesson that I draw from this about this large place is there was room for more. Now, let's look around you. Just look up and down. We've, we, have, we have an assembly of believers today. But we have room for more. This is the heart of God, too. God's heart is always for more. Always. If you read the, read the Word of God and you keep saying, God, show me your pulse, your heartbeat, it is always, I want more. God wants, well, Peter even says it like this, he doesn't even want one soul to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God, God's heart beats for more. And this is what we're seeing here. God looks at the kingdom. He looks at what it can be. When we see right here, we saw what it was, and now we're seeing what it is. The wall is rebuilt. God is already projecting what it will be. Now, we don't get a completely clear view there, but God does. God sees what it can be. And when you see this in light of the kingdom of God, it gets really exciting because what the Lord, the Lord is teaching is what I can do yet through you. You have no idea if you will give your heart to me and let me lead you where you want me to go. 
Now, as we look at this area about of there's always room for more, I want you to look at a verse with me in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken whatsoever, let's show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Notice something here when, when, we, when we're looking at this. He's speaking about we have a kingdom, a big kingdom. The kingdom of God is very big. It has been expressed in, in the city of Jerusalem. It was expressed in the tabernacle. It was expressed many ways. Today, it is expressed often in the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ is, is where the kingdom of God is expressed. But as we see this, we see a kingdom in verse 4. There's a lot of room. It's bigger than what the people were filling. And I think this is so important to recognize that God's heart towards his people is for growth, not just in numbers, but in size. So when God sees the kingdom and growth, he wants us to grow. God's heart is that this church will be full. God, God's heart is not that just this church will be full, that all churches be full. They would be overflowing. Matter of fact, if you want to look in the Word of God at something really interesting, in Hebrews, he, the writer says, you know, don't forsake assembling together and even more as you get close to the very end of time. It's almost like I want God's people to assemble more in the end days. More because I want more. And God's heart is toward His people because He wants His people to enjoy His blessings and what He's really uh, given them to enjoy. Hebrews chapter, uh, another verse is Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. Really, when you take the Bible and you look at the Word of God, you say, what does the Bible do? It just keeps beating with the heartbeat of God. Everywhere you go, God says, I love you. I love people. I love my people. I love my church. I love Jerusalem. And here, just as John is signing out in the book of Revelation, the Bible is just about fulfilled, uh, written at that time, the written word. He was on the Isle of Patmos. The Holy Spirit speaking through John says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come. God's heart is for more. God's message is come. You just see it everywhere. Oftentimes you may not see those words, but it doesn't matter where we've been, what we've went through, how, how the week has went, the month, God's heart has just come to me. He just continually beats that. I just want you to come. And as you come, I will do everything else and supply every need. You know, a few years ago, quite a few now, I was in Washington State working with one of my colleagues and we were treating what they, we would call noxious weeds. And, and this was in the state of Washington. And we we're treating with them with a selective herbicide that would take care of that weed. And we were just talking and he was like 20 feet away. And we were walking through a governmental project. And all of a sudden, I had a backpack on with some herbicide. And I took one foot out. And I stepped right in the middle of a great big nest of timber rattlers. Now, I've never encountered timber, rat timber rattlers till this time. And there I was, right in this huge nest. 
And I backed off. They're a rattlesnake just like the rest of them. So what's a timber rattler? They're not really in Arizona. They're up north. And they're up in Montana, places like that. But at that point, it was like, huh. I just crossed into their territory, but God made them too. And pretty soon, we, I, I stepped back, and there was some right there. And my partner, my colleague was over there, and I walked, there was timber rattlers right there. And it was like, oh my, this is something. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but then you just get jittery. And you're, what you're doing, you keep on working, and you think you say timber rattlers everywhere. Does, it doesn't matter. But God had placed them right there, as unique as they are, and I just stepped into this area. Now, God's heart is for more. But as he brings in more, it isn't what we would expect to encounter, oftentimes. God uses special people, special circumstances, special events that declares his heartbeat you know, as a pastor, different times I've been, in, been pastoring years ago, and I think, Lord, if I could just have a normal church with normal people who don't cause any problems, and we'll have normal services. And God says, no, i got to give you some blessings, <laughs> some real rich blessings. Matter of fact, sometimes when we think of God's heartbeat for more, he's bringing more to bless us. One time I was in the middle of this real a unique situation and another pastor friend stopped by our house and he says, uh, John, how's this going? He says, well, everywhere I go, it's like whap, whap. And he says, you ever think that that guy right now is, is your greatest friend? I thought, what? No, oftentimes God's way is not our way. And God works in these amazing ways. And and just like you may, we may encounter something that fully throws us off our game. Finally, with Joe, the guy I was working with, I said, Joe, I'm done. I can't work. i got to get out of here. I can't finish this job because everything I do now, and I'm not a fearful guy normally, I'm thinking about stepping again time, again, on one of those timber rattlers. And so we just packed up, we went home, and we didn't finish the job at that time. But the heartbeat of God is amazing and how he works. But I want us to think of something else as we're looking at the story going into it today. And that is that this city was done, but for a moment, I want us to see what this city had went through. A lot of times we don't recognize what something has really went through. And I jotted down some of the things that has happened in the city of Jerusalem. 52 times it has been attacked. Uh, 44 times it was captured and recaptured. Now, what I'm saying is the city of Jerusalem has just been battled and battered and pushed down, and 22 times it was sieged. Now, a siege in a city like Jerusalem is no light thing. What they would do, they would usually go to the door or the gate that Nehemiah had been built, and they'll put up battering rams. And what those are is long logs that might be almost as long as this room that could be four to six feet as thick, as far as I can get them, that hang down off of this assembly they built that is covered usually with some kind of a skin to keep them from burning because on the top of the, the wall of Jerusalem would be the, the people trying to keep them out that's pouring boiling over oil on top of those that are running the ram. And what they do, they take the ram and they swing it at the gate. And that thing would go back and swing. And all day, all night, all day, all night, 
they would keep hitting that gate to see if they could not break that gate. And they'd just keep right on going. Just keep right on going. That battering ram would just keep going. And finally, just like in, in AD 70, it was Titus, uh, the Roman ruler, who overthrew the city of Jerusalem and just brought it down to ruins again. And what finally happened, they broke down that gate. They go into the inner temple, into the inner, inner courts of the temp, temp, temple. Uh, one soldier, Titus, said, don't ever strike, strike a match or start a fire inside the temple. Don't do it. It's the holy place. He, was, he did not believe in the same God. But one soldier, I've read, started a fire, and that temple caught on fire. And that place was just went down descriptive and prophetic of the words of Jesus that there would not be left one stone upon another that wouldn't be thrown down. Jerusalem has went through many, many battles. And I want to go to the second truth here that is so important that we get. get. Not only is there room for more, but it's what God builds with. God specializes in restoring destroyed and broken things. That is God's specialty. God takes that which is broken and he begins to restore. You know, I have a guy that I did some business with just recently in Washington State, and he has seven of these very classic antique cars. He has cancer. They're moving to, they're moving to Sun City West. But he has spent his life taking these old cars. One's a 55 Buick for you guys, and one's a 36 Chevy Coupe. For you, for you guys, there's a, a, a 37 Chevy pickup, and he's taken these cars, he's restored them to bring them back to something that they once were. Now, what's amazing about God, when God restores, he does it completely, inside, outside. The best that car will be is the last touch a man can give it. But when God restores, he does it completely, inside and outside. He does it all. God is amazing in his power to restore in so many ways. And as we, you know, there is something in the Bible that is very precious. You'll see this in Psalm 7 and 2. And there's a lot of verses in this when you think about God and his power to restore. But God in, in Psalm 7, 2, it, it states, Keep me as the apple of the eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. And here David is simply saying, God, I want to be the apple of your eye. I want to be that close thing to your heart that you look and you see me. Here's another verse similar. Thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me against you, against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. My eye will be on one thing. This is apple harvest in Washington. And last year I did not go to the harvest. Usually I'll spend a couple days there. But something happened. A lot of decisions were made that, what, that wasn't good in my absence, okay? And I will go and help make some decisions and, and pray about the right way to do that because so much of raising fruit is decision-making, and you have to listen to many people because there's so many different sides of the decisions. But when I walk in the orchard, let's say you would go with me and say, I'd like to go, I'd like to go up there and walk in the orchard. And we walked down a row. They're 13 feet apart. They're three-foot plantings. So that's how, the intensity of it. They're on, on trellises. I would look at something different than you. 
I could not get my eyes off the apples. Because they're getting so close to harvest, you're looking for size, you're looking for color, you're looking for texture, you're looking for that which declares its value, and because of that, your eyes, as an orchardist, stays on the fruit, especially this time of year. God's eyes never leave the fruit. His lies just lock on us. He cares so much. And when God looks at us like the apple of his eye, you know what he sees? He sees, he sees what grace can do when given a chance. What the grace of God could do in our lives if the Holy Spirit has free course. And I think it's a wonderful blessing as pastors and elders and brothers and sisters in the ministry, when we're dealing with a difficult situation, we can back up and say, God, what could grace do if given a chance? Let me read you a list of people in the Bible. God specialized in destroying, in raising up broken people. But here's, here's a, a list of people. See if you've ever heard of these guys. Peter, Andrew, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Simon, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the brother of James. You know who they were? They were the 12. They sat with Jesus even in the upper room when he had his last time when he broke bread before he was going to give his life. They were the 12. But you know what they really were? Men that were just nothing but a bunch of failures till the grace of God came in their life. And grace began to work. You see, Peter was just a, blum, a blundering fisherman until the day when he could look at his Lord Jesus after the resurrection and say, my Lord and my God. You think of the Apostle Paul, not even mentioned here right now in the ones I read to you. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church, and God could look at that man and know what grace could do. Just like he looks at everyone here and he sees all of the failure, but he looks through the failure, through the stumbling, through the bumbling, and he sees his grace. And he says, this is what can happen when my grace gets a hold of that person. You ever think about how many of us here have just been a spectacle, the apple in God's eye at times, and he's touched you, and it's made the difference even bringing you here today. He touches in the most amazing way. And when he touches, he does a work that no one else can do, and losers and failures become but God intersections where God makes a difference completely in every way, every time, and everywhere we go. What I want us to look at now, look, look at now with me is uh, I'm going to tell you a story about a, a situation Devin and I had a couple weeks ago too. This was another one. In our house, we live in the desert, and we had this uh, mouse get in the house. Matter of fact, we've, that wasn't the first time. Matter of fact, we had a girl that lived with seven years, and it was so funny because when a mouse got in the house, she would get in her bedroom and she'd jump up on the bed <laughs> because she wouldn't even want to walk through the house. And we lived in the country in a pasture because she was so scared of the mouse. But I will say when a mouse gets in the house and the first thing that happened, Deb began to tell me, now I think we had some nuts kind of disappear. 
And then she also told me there were some Doritos that got opened that didn't like, look like human openings. And sure enough, the mouse was in the house. And what we did was we, so I just did what I thought would be right. I got these traps and I got this, this food and I think we'll get, take care of this guy. But I don't know if you've ever been here, but this guy wasn't just the typical ma- mouse. He was clever, he was crafty. He would not go to those sticks, those sticky things. He would not, and yet he kept going back to the food. And really what happened, and I don't think I ever told you this, Pastor Joshua, was one night Pastor Joshua was sitting there visiting and I was kind of looking at you, but I wasn't quite looking at you because I saw that mouse walking. (laughs) And I remember thinking, ah, there he just told me where he's hiding. And so I was able to go back there and lay the traps down and thank God we got the mouse. But one of the things that is interesting is he moved into our life and he was unusual, he was unique, he was crafty, he was clever, you can take it all. But as we think about God working through people and using unusual things and bringing us from ruins to riches, from rags into palaces, God is doing that with people that are just different than we thought. This is who God works with, always in the way in which he works. I want you to look at some of these people with me at the screen, and I think you can be privileged. From verses 5 through 64, we're just going to scroll through people after people that God worked with. I think one family had 2,800 in their family. It was the family of Joab. But you'll look, and we'll just keep on scrolling through the screen, and we're going to see person after Zerubbabel and Joshua, Nehemiah, Ezra, and you can just see person after person, and how many was in their groups, and how many was there, and it just kept on going. And there they were, people, people that struggled, people that got mad, people that blew it. And yet they were at the wall, and this is who God was using. The last part of this lesson we want us to remember is God uses people to do his work. A lot of times we think, well, someone could just take care of that. God says, how about you? And if you you notice, we come towards the end of this, we see the the summary of all this. And in in Nehemiah, I'm going to read uh, a couple of verses here in Nehemiah chapter uh, 7, verses 66 and 67, 68, 69, because we see there it says, the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and their female servants, on whom there was 7,337, and they had 245 male and female singers, Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6720. From some, and this was the people that was there at that time. It sounds like a lot of people, but it was nothing compared to what it would become. Sometimes we might think, well, this is all I want. Well, if, and I think many times one of the weaknesses in any church life is where we say, let's just keep it just like this. And God says, no. Isaiah says, lengthen your borders, strengthen your stakes. You need to be stretched. You need to go beyond your comfort zones because I use people to do this amazing work. I raise up people just like you. 
And that's one of the reasons right here. There are there's so many places to volunteer. There's so many places to be involved in the church. And sometimes, I want to tell you about just one of the volunteer areas that spoke to my heart. As I became an elder here, and I would be, we'd be in meetings over here, and here would be a group of uh, people cleaning the church. And I began to notice when they cleaned the church, they did it joyfully. And they were just rejoicing. And Deb was on their team, and one time I went to their Christmas time. And you know what they did? They just rejoiced at Christmas time. It was amazing. Because they were doing what God wanted them to do. And in what God was having them do, it was just growing and growing. But they were people, just like us. God uses people to do his work. And when he does it, there's a lot of things that begin to happen in so many ways. Now, on the screen, you're going to see just a couple takeaways before we go into one more point on, on the study. And we will, look, we will look at these takeaways, just several takeaways from the study. One is... One of the takeaways is, short takeaways from the chapter, some plant, others water. Some come first, others later, but all of the increase comes from God. That's so important to realize. Some plant, some water, all the increase comes from God. Another lesson, whatever Israel would become, and yes, it would again rise to declare the praise of God. Out of the city that lay in ruins, here comes the praise of God it would be all of God. That is so important that we always remember, all of God, not God, you, we were great partners with you even. No, it's of God. And when Israel could recognize the power of God, what God can do through someone who will give him all the glory, it's already his and only his, both now and forever, but we have no idea until we say, God, it is for you and you alone completely. I will just tell you there are some things that there, even in, in the working through this building that we had sensed some exaltation and idolatry and we removed some objects because we did, wanted nothing to come between the magnification of Jesus and the glory of God in this church. Nothing. Because God will not share his glory. He's not... A, he is, he is very jealous of his glory. One of his very characteristics and names is, I am a God of glory and I'm also jealous. He's a jealous God, but it's pure jealousy. It's completely pure. Another lesson, let's just look at another. Jesus is the head of the church and is jealous that his glory and work remain above everything else. Now, we're, we've been looking at Nehemiah, but the parallel is Jesus says, no, this is my church. And all the work that ever comes from my church, I want it to be recognized as for me. Here's one for you. For the glory of God to fill the house of God, the people of God will give praise and glory to God. God works your people. If the glory of God fills this house, and it does, and it will more, and it will more, it will be because people give the glory to God. If the glory is taken from God, the, the people will not, be, will not give the glory to God. And they cannot, and the glory of God. And here's one not to forget. It's just so important. Uh, these were just meditations I kept studying. With thanksgiving comes blessing. There's no blessing without thanksgiving. Whenever our heart t t shuts off to thanksgiving, we're shutting off the blessing. 
There's some times in our life we just have to reset and say, God, I just want to spend time. This is where I've been at times. I just need to spend time in prayer to you and thank you. And that's it. Thank you for my redemption, my children, everything you've given me, the strength, the health, everything. Thank you, Jesus, because that's where the blessing comes. The blessing of God comes through thankful hearts. God works through people, but remember the channel he's going to work is through thankful hearts. God's children giving him the glory and thanking him for all that he is doing. You know, we're coming, uh, we're going to, I just have a couple quick takeaways from this message as we come to the end of it today, but I, I do want to give us one verse. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 7. I'll read it quickly. But it showed a church that was growing, but they got caught in a trap. It was a trap of self-comparison and a trap of measuring themselves and a trap of rivaling each other in some way. And Paul writing to this church says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, even as to infants of Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. I just gave you, for you were not able yet to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able, for you are so fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I'm of Paul. And another says, I am of Apollos. I planted... Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. So then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. You know, that's really simple in some ways, but we forget that very easily. I don't know. You, we, I, I know we, we, one of our elders is a math teacher. We have other math instructors here. A lot of your children or your children are in math right now. But if you just do a simple mathematical equation where Paul says, I planted, Apollo watered, but God gave the increase. I is a zero plus Apollo. What do you got? Zero plus zero, right? I zero, Apollo zero equals what? Zero. But if you change that equation and you put in one person, I, zero. Apollos, zero. God, one. You've got the increase. You've got God. One. It's not three. It's one. Because he was the one who did the work completely. And he gets the glory. And he is very jealous of his glory. And that's why Paul took the time he did to write what he did. Now, I want to read through these last few verses here, and I want to give you, real simply, a couple things to, to take away as we wrap up the message today. We've been reading, and we notice all the things they gave, and then they gave something else in verse 70. From, some from among the heads of the father's households gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand gold drachmas, 50 basins, 50 priests' garments, some of the heads of the father's households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. That which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas and 22,000 silver minas and 67 priest's garments. 
Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people of the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. Verse, look at verse 66 with me if you have your Bibles open. First, the whole assembly came together. They came together. Lesson one, you come together, but something happened when they came together. They came together and then they gave. They gave. They just began to give and it started with all these, these uh, physical things. There was horses and mules and camels and donkeys and all of these things. And then it went into the drachmas and the minas. And the drachmas would be that which uh, would re represent the coin of ancient Greece. And it was replaced by the euro, I believe, in 2002. And one coin would be equal today, in today's dollars, I believe, to around $120. And the minas would be Babylonian, uh, Babylonian money. And they would give this. And again, once again, the shekels of silver, the shekels of gold, it was coming from what they had. And they gave it. And they gave. They came together and they gave. And through this, God began to multiply, and he worked through people. And that which was now looking beautiful would become more beautiful because God's children were, was a part of that work. There's one more thing that they did there that I think is important we can miss, though, that in verse uh, 73, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people and the temple servants and all Israel lived in their cities. Okay, this, um, you grab that and say, okay, they lived in their cities. I get that. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel, all those that were listed, were back in their cities. They went home. You know, we've been talking about how God restores broken things, and he restores broken cities like he did Jerusalem. He restores broken marriages like many of you could testify of. He restores broken families, and I'm sure many of you would know of situations of his power of restoration. He also restores broken homes, and he also restores broken marriages, and God is the restorer. But you know, you notice with me what happened. They went back to their house. They didn't just sit at the temple. They were active in ministry where they came from. They went back to their villages. They got connected. I know I think if there's one of the great calls of the church of God is be active in your church, give in your church, but go home. Sometimes all our home needs is our heart. I remember the, the, the book that really turned me around in, in one way. I was young in the ministry, and I read the, the book by James Dobson that said, turn your heart toward home, toward home. And I was just running and running and running, and it just caught me. I need to go home. And that does not mean these, these I'm sure these people would be active in the church, in, in, the, in the building, in the castle, everywhere. But then all of a sudden comes that direction. Go home. Go home. You know, for you parents here that are raising children to the glory of God, you've only got one shot. And it's over. And it happens so quickly. I, I will never forget marrying my oldest daughter that's now 43 and standing there 
with her husband, Aaron, and they've been blessed with a tremendous marriage and three wonderful children. And as they leave in our yard and they walk down that aisle, I go, God, what happened? It's gone. You've only got one shot. And these people said, we'll go home. And they went home. And I don't know, you know, the, the Word of God speaks about so much in Deuteronomy and the Psalms, places that you teach the children, you walk with the children, dads, moms, you work together, you, you share together, you love together, you suffer together. But the home, God never intended the home to simply be a filling station. He intended it to be a source of ministry and strength and comfort and refuge. God's heart would be that the home is just like another city that God has rebuilt, not us. And the power of that home is when that city's message goes out, that it's Jesus who lives here. And he's the one who's the center of this place. And he's also the head of it. And he also surrounds it. And everywhere we go, we have the protection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does going home mean to you? What does, what does it mean? Or maybe I could ask it like this. Are you home? You know, there's a sense that no one here is home yet. I, I will just tell you, even in this study, the Lord has spoken to me and God has blessed us with 15 grandchildren and just got a call last week. Our 16th is on his way or her way. We don't know yet. That's God's business. But one of the things that hit me, I was just thinking about that, how many times, even with my children and grandchildren, they got just a clip of me as I was running between another project or another sermon or another message. And I thought, God, I, don't, I, want, to go and I want to go out with my kids at home. I really do. I want to bless, to encourage, to listen. You know, sometimes... I think of the little fellow that was asked to spell love one time. And when he spelled it, someone asked him, how do you spell love? And he said, T-I-M-E. They said, no, I, I said love. He said, yeah, I know, sir. It's T-I-M-E. And they said, no, we ask you to spell love. He said, no, love to me is time. And that's so true in all of our lives, whether it's our wives, our husbands, our families, the neighbor across the street that just intersects in our homes. The guy we work with on the job, the woman in the office with us, whatever it is, love to many is time. And they, went, and they went back to their villages. And I don't know what that means to all of us, and, and really in some ways it's bigger to all of us than what we can fully. But I, but I want us to look back in the message and think of just a couple truths that are so necessary as we think about going home. You know, really another part of that is the church. And I want to give this to anyone here that says, you don't know where I am right now. I don't even have a home. Jesus didn't either. But he made a home. He calls it the church that he purchased with his own blood. And I love that, that God still gives his children a home no matter who we are, where we've been. 
But there's just, a, I want to go through those last three points again. One, remember, is there is still room for more, okay? Even at the table of God, he just makes another place. In the church of Christ, we do it. But also, our home expands to God's glory through his strength. God specializes. He just specializes in restoring broken things to beauty. He did it at that time, and he does it today. I don't know someone here, God could be speaking to you and saying, I know I need to go home. It is so easy to sacrifice ministry on the altar, children on the altar of ministry. It is so easy. I think Pastor Joshua shared that last week, the week before. It is so easy. It's, it's also easy to sacrifice it just on good things that overlook it. But God specializes in restoring broken things. And this is what he did with Jerusalem, and that's what he does with, in all of our lives. And he also works with every kind of person. You know, God isn't, God isn't partial. He's not prejudiced. His love is the same for all people. Out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, and tribe, God's love is just the same. Oh, that God's heart can be our heart, that even this church is a place without partiality, without prejudice, without the respect of men. And that it becomes only a place that says, this is home. I believe there's a sign out here, welcome home. And God's heart is that he works with every person. But I guess the question is, are we home? In some ways, they'd completed a lot of work here, and yet there was a lot more to be done, and God would do amazing things. And we'll keep on following this next week. We'll see God keep working. Working through people just like us and restoring things and making it what we didn't even think it's possible to be. But really, in one sense, we're home, but there's another sense we're not home. And there might be someone here today that says, I have no home. And I will just tell you this by the Word of God, that if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your personal Savior, you don't have a home. Until He becomes the, the head of your house, the head of your life, the leader that you follow, then you have a home. And I just want to encourage you to realize all it takes is saying yes to God, and God will come in. But he loves to hear our yes. He doesn't force himself. He's not, like a, he's not like a robber. He doesn't force an entry into our life. That is not the God in which we worship. The God in which we worship, who rebuilds, restores, reaches his arms out and says there's still more, is the one that just desires that we would say yes to him and then follow him as we would. Whatever God is telling you and how he's speaking to you, I don't know what that is, but there is this seed that comes through the Holy Spirit in messages, and it happens to me all the time. And whatever that is today, just do what God has told you to do. Whatever it is. And, and sometimes I think, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it this, this evening. Do it now. Whatever that is, it might be just write the letter. It might be just make the phone call. Do what the Lord tells you to do, and let God bring the increase in the way he would. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word that is alive. I thank you, Father, for messages that come throughout the Bible that just teach us your greatness, your glory, your magnificence of your heart. And you even teach us who we are and 
what you do through people like us. God, I thank you that you are the God of the universe. You're the God of all glory. You're the God of all praise. Have your way, Lord, in this sanctuary, in every life, every heart. And Father, if there is anyone here today that says, I don't have a home, I pray, oh Father, that they could say yes to you, that you would come in and allow and say, Lord, my life has been ruined and shattered, but I want you to make it new. Have your way, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.